Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval, terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. For the last seven episodes, we've been talking to folks who make and sell comics. Uh, For this one, we sat down with someone who studies and preserves comics. Our guest this week is Caitlin McGurk, an assistant professor at Ohio State University and the associate curator of outreach for the Billy Ireland Cartoon Museum and Library at Ohio State University. She leads us through the various prongs of her work, which include uh, adding donations, uh, getting donations really, for the Billy Ireland's already enormous uh, collection, uh, conducting her own research on the history of comics, assembling shows for the Billy Ireland's museum, and teaching classes at OSU. The cartoonist Jack Kirby once said that comics will break your heart, and it's true. But McGurk tells us how she learned in the course of her career that if you love comics enough, they'll sometimes show that they love you back. As longtime listeners know, librarians are my favorite people in the world, so I couldn't be happier uh, that we get to share this episode with you. Then in a Slate Plus segment, McGurk talks about the comics she used to make, tells us why she doesn't make them anymore, and explains what it's like to occasionally, largely by accident, come across her own juvenilia in the Billy Ireland Collection's holdings. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? I'm Caitlin McGurk, and I'm the Associate Curator and Assistant Professor at the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum at Ohio State University. So uh, we are the largest collection of comics and cartoon art in the entire world, um, Mm -hmm. and we're one of the special collections libraries at the Ohio State University. So our primary function is as a library and an archive, but we also happen to have a major public museum component as well. So we've been here for 40 years as of this year, actually. May 1st, 2017 was our our official 40th anniversary. And uh, by world's largest, I mean we have over 3 million pieces. So it is Hmm. a tremendous collection. What sort of stuff does it contain? 
what is a piece in a collection like that? Yeah. So um, the basic breakdown is we have over 300,000 pieces of original art. So that can be, you know, the original hand-drawn pieces from Marvel and DC Comics or from comic strips or political cartoons or manga, animation, graphic novels, everything in between. We have about uh, 6,000 boxes of manuscript material. So we collect all of the Mm. paperwork related to an artist's life and career, which typically... uh, Consists of fan mail and hate mail and uh, <laughs> photographs and contracts and receipts and stuff like that that kind of builds the picture of, of what their uh-huh. career was like. We have 75,000 books, mostly graphic novels, uh, 30,000 comic books, um, 2.5 million comic strip clippings clipped out of the newspaper. Wow. Um, and tons and tons of other stuff, including ephemera, which for us is a lot of merchandise from comics history and some pretty unique items like some of the first handmade cosplay costumes dating back to the 1940s. So Hmm. a little bit of everything or a lot of everything, I should say. How did you end up working with this enormous, astonishing collection so I have been a comics fan and reader for you know most of my life and um, set out with a crazy idea to actually become a comics librarian somehow. And needless to say, I did not think it would work out quite as well as it did because so few <laughs> things do in, in life. But I am definitely like a rare example of someone who actually got their dream job. Um, and the way that it kind of all started for me was when I was in undergrad, I was majoring in English with a minor in creative writing, and I was making my own comics and had been a fan of comics for a long time. Um, didn't necessarily want to teach professionally and didn't necessarily want to try to write or create art professionally for money. And so I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. So when I decided to go to library science school, the idea was just if I could somehow maybe, you know, work at a public library and build a graphic novel collection there. Like that's really Mm -hmm. like where my sites Mm -hmm. were. (laughs) And so when I went to school for library science, I basically um, focused all of my projects around working with comics and was able to get a lot of different projects internships and volunteer opportunities and insert myself in every little place that I could where there was something going on with with comics where they might make use of a library science student uh, or, or volunteer. So I had a internship at Marvel Comics where I helped to build the archive there. I volunteered for uh, Columbia University where they had a small mini comics collection and they allowed me to spend a summer cataloging it. I also interned at a place called the Center for Cartoon Studies in White River Junction, Vermont, which is you know mm-hmm. one of the only schools in the United States dedicated to teaching people about how to make comics professionally. Mm-hmm. So little by little, I built I built this this or, or pigeonholed myself into this very <laughs> unique uh, career path, and eventually, um, almost six years ago, a job opportunity came up out here at the Billy Ireland, and so I've I've been here ever since then. And just three years ago was. Um, had the opportunity to come on as a tenure track professor. So now I'm a a faculty member officially. That's amazing. So is there such a thing for you today as a typical day? No, (laughs) that would be, it changes every single day because 
you know, this collection is is so large, and we ha- we have such we have so many different purposes at the Billy Ireland. You know, one of course is the archive and just strictly pre- preserving the stuff. But then in the reading room, it's making all of this stuff accessible and working with researchers. Then in the museum, of course, it's curating exhibits and um, and. Uh, then in the classroom, it's teaching about comics. So mm-hmm. because we do so many different things and we're such a small staff, every day drastically changes. I can tell you mm-hmm. that, you know, currently, like a, a day like today, um, I am working on our upcoming exhibit. So we have two new shows that are opening on November 4th in our museum. And the one I'm focused on is called Cartoon Couture. And it's about the history of the intersection between comics and fashion and in the United States, mostly. That is extremely my thing. <laughs> so I've been writing labels all day for that uh, and 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 editing my uh, co-curator's labels. But tomorrow I'll or not tomorrow, next week I'll be teaching classes and helping with the the install for the show and giving tours to tour, uh, different community groups that are coming in. So it really changes and and varies throughout the year depending on whether there's a major project that we need to work on related to a donor. I do a lot of donor development work, which really involves me um, traveling and visiting with potential artists who are going to be donating their collections to us, working with them to help them decide what they want us to take on. Or unfortunately, sometimes uh, if someone has passed away, going out to their house and helping to you know, start packing things up and move things out to the Billy Ireland. So that's happened uh, a lot this over the past couple of years. How do you get in touch with people or how do they get in touch with you if you're looking for someone who might be donating materials to the collection? What? How does that even come about? So we've, because we've been here for 40 years, you know, we've definitely made a name for ourselves. And the way that everything started to begin with was 40 years ago, Milton Kniff, who was in his time, one of the most successful American cartoonists in history, best known for Terry and the Pirates and Steve Canyon, which were adventure comic strips in the newspapers, he founded our collection. And uh, so back then in 1977, it was just his collection. It was called the Milton Kniff Reading Room. But Mm -hmm. he lived for about 10 years after making that donation. And in those 10 years, he was the first person to be integral in encouraging his contemporaries to also donate to us. So people like Will Eisner and Walt Kelly, who did Pogo, also took an interest, uh, even though they didn't have a connection to Ohio State the way he did, because he uh, actually went to OSU in the 20s. But so things kind of grew from word of mouth. And that was the case uh, starting back then. But since then, you know, we travel, me and the other curators, or the other curators and I <laughs> travel a lot to uh, different comic conventions and comic association meetings and society meetings and build relationships and connections with these people. Um, cartoon art is not something that historically people have been interested in collecting in an institutional setting, unfortunately, because it's long been considered a lower art form. So since we had started this whole thing in 1977, that really made us one of the first institutions to really pay attention to this work and treat it with the respect that it deserves. So early on, Many other many cartoonists, there were no other options. Uh, if they wanted to give their stuff to, to to an institution, we were one of the only games in town. That, of course, has changed and comics have become more acceptable in the academic setting and the institutional setting. So now there's lots of other uh, places that are collecting this kind of material. But it takes a lot of time to build relationships with people because if you're an artist, especially someone like a 
a comic strip artist or a political cartoonist, you know, and you're doing this stuff sometimes every single day, you know, seven days a week producing stuff for a newspaper. I mean, not only is it a massive amount of stuff, but in the end, I mean, it's like handing your child over to somebody. You know, you're, you're entrusting this thing that is, is your entire life's work to somebody else to take care of. And it is a, a really important decision and a really scary decision for a lot of people. So we make sure to take a lot of care in building those relationships and building that trust and really allowing uh, people to see how we're able to preserve this stuff and to make it accessible and ensure that their their legacy lives on you know, after they do through the work that we do to to preserve it. When you are working with someone, once you convince them maybe that you're going to treat their life's work with respect, what's the next step there? Is it is it always going to just come in as, as just a pure donation uh, out of the kindness of their heart uh, and their desire to have their work preserved? Or is there a financial element to those transactions? That's a good question. So we we do really heavily rely on donations. We don't have a very strong acquisitions budget. So the small acquisitions budget that we have, we use to purchase things that are going to fill gaps in our collection. Um, mm-hmm. If we notice that, for example, and this happened, I think, two years ago, we don't have any original art by Steve Ditko. How can that be? And so we mm-hmm. went and purchased specifically things with by Steve Ditko for mm-hmm. uh, you know for that particular uh, budget. This is year. the co-creator of Spider Man, so an important figure in among other th- characters in the history of comics. Exactly, and and who, whose artwork is highly collectible. So it's the kind of thing that we can't necessarily rely on someone donating to us, um, and that is what makes it particularly difficult to collect a lot of um, specifically comic book art. But uh, so we use our acquisitions budget for that as well as for um, supporting classes. So there's a lot of classes at OSU that are teaching with comics. And if we know that there's a specific class that's going to need certain materials or many copies of certain books, we'll we'll spend the money there. Um, We are occasionally able to make a case for buying uh, pieces of somebody's collection. But collections at a whole are, I mean, worth such an unbelievable value that it's uh, it's just outside of our, our purchasing budget. So the incentive really for most people is preservation. Um, again, if you think about someone who has done a drawing for a comic strip, for, that's a daily comic strip, so every single day, seven days a week potentially, for say 40 years, and on top of the actual finished comic strip, there are drafts and sketches and roughs that go into every one of those. I mean, you're talking about like a room full of paper in itself. Hmm. So um, there aren't that many institutions that are actually capable of taking on collections like that. So sure. um, it's a it's a big benefit to have a place that that is actually able to accommodate something like that. And again, is able to not only preserve it in the very specific way that we do, but to also make it permanently available because OSU is a is a land grant institution, Ohio State University, which you know is what we're a part of, and so that means it's a public university. So our materials don't just get hidden away somewhere in a you know a basement; they're fully available to anyone and everyone who wants to come and study with them and enjoy them. And on top of that, they get to be displayed in our museum, depending on the exhibit that we're doing. So there's a lot of there's a lot of incentive there that uh, goes beyond you know financial, of course. Um, because of the way the law is written, people who are living artists uh, cannot uh, benefit from 
tax deductions from donating their collection. But if you're collect, mm. but if you're donating a collection of someone else's art, you can claim claim it on your taxes. And so for some people, that is part of the insensitive. So some of the people that you're getting collections from may not just be the artists themselves, but also people say who have been collecting comics throughout their own lives. Yeah, I would say it's actually probably 50-50. So a lot of the collections come to us from actual collectors. And how do you meet those people? I mean, you know, if you know a certain artist is getting older, maybe there are connections uh, that you have to them, perhaps you could start having conversations with them. But but what about other collectors? Do they typically approach you or or, uh, are there other ways that, that you put your feelers out for them? Um, I think that people who are collectors of this work, a lot of them uh, tend to know about us because if you're interested mm-hmm. in this kind of thing and you're a collector yourself, you probably have a lean towards, I would think, preservation to some degree. And so they're aware of the fact that we're out there. So a lot of the connections just kind of have have been made organically. There have been some collectors that we've been introduced to by artists whose work that they've bought and they want us to meet that person. Um but otherwise, there's no there's no single way that it happens, really. Sometimes it's through, again, word of mouth, through a, a specific introduction or from their own research. Are there any items or collections that you're especially proud to have helped bring in? Yes, I'm very proud to have helped bring in the Jay Lynch collection. So Jay Lynch was one of the fathers of underground comics, um, best known for the comic he did called Bijou Funnies, as well as a ton of work he did for Tops, uh, especially Wacky Packages and Bazooka Joe um, and Garbage Pail Kids. And he did a number of Tune books as well, which is Francois Mouly's publication. Um, so he's he's a really, really important artist and someone that I had developed a, a, a fr- close friendship with over the past couple of years. And I'd gone to visit him a few times up in his home in upstate New York. And unfortunately, he passed away this, this past spring. Mm. And uh, not only did he leave his entire collection to us in his will, but he left us his house. He left us wow. literally everything, which is um, a good uh, example of the kind of just how, how deep some of these connections and relationships can run. So it was, a, of course, extremely heartbreaking and difficult experience to go up there sure. and, and work to clean out his home and get it all um, sent out to the Billy Ireland and sorted for things that we were going to donate elsewhere. I mean, clothing and stuff like that. Um, but uh, an amazing, amazing gift that he gave us because not only was it his own work, but he was a major collector himself and was really interested in preserving the history of satire. So he collected all sorts of publications and other people's artwork and also saved every single letter that he was ever written since 1952. <laughs> so in his collection, in in its original envelope as well, and very well preserved. So in his collection, we have things like letters from Lenny Bruce to him. We also have letters between him and a f- and 14-year-old Art Spiegelman talking about having just read the first issue of Spider-Man. All kinds of unbelievable stuff wow. documenting the entire history of um, of counterculture uh, comics and and of satire. So it's a it's a astounding collection. It's also unwieldingly large, and we're going to be processing it for for the next year at least, I would say. But we are planning an exhibit of it in the future. So I'm I'm really proud of bringing that one in, and there's a number of others as well. But um, 
You know, it's one of the things that's been most interesting and unexpected for me, especially because there's certainly no, there certainly weren't any classes on this in library school, is <laughs> um, that experience of building relationships with donors. And of course, that mm-hmm. sounds kind of cold because these people are actually, you know, your friends and potentially, and like in the case with Jay Lynch, someone whose work I'm a huge fan of and have been for yeah. a long time. Yeah. And uh, also dealing with the loss that's involved there as well. And the response, that very heavy responsibility of, of preser- preserving this person's legacy. It's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty major weight. And, and of course, a responsibility that I feel honored to have. But, um, but again, that's not something that I, that I expected um, to, to deal with. With professionally, and it's been something that I really appreciate the the experience with, but it can be challenging for sure. That's something that I, you know I spent a lot of time thinking about archives and archival projects. But an element of it that you just alluded to that I had never really thought about before is the the kind of affective uh, weight that an archive might have for those who are archiving it. Uh, that that yeah. the degrees of feeling that go into bringing these collections together must be an intense, if invisible, part of of the process of assembling them. Absolutely. I mean, you are, um, you know, me and my colleagues and people like Karen Green and people in other institutions, you know, you are the caretakers of these people's lives and legacies. And it's, uh, again, an amazing honor, but a very, very big responsibility. And, of course, you want to be able to do every single person justice and and make sure that you are making their work as available as and accessible as possible in a way that they would approve of, you know? Um, and I, and I hope we are, I think we are, but it is a, like, yeah, a very, it's, it can be, it can get pretty heavy. So. Yeah. Are there ever things that you want to acquire that you wish you could bring into the collection, but that where it just doesn't work out? Um, sure. There are certain things that are just outside of our, um, abilities to, attain. And mostly that's for financial reasons, because very understandably so, a lot of cartoonists can't just donate their work to us. You know, they, they're they paying for their kids' college tuition by planning to sell the originals for their graphic novel or, you know, anything. So uh, I wish that we could <laughs> sometimes have some of that stuff. I wish that we could have the ability to buy it, uh, because I know that those artists really need to rely on that. But that's just uh, that's just how it goes. And for a lot of the artists that are in those kind of situations, we will sometimes work with them to see if we can at least get a representative sample, as we call it, of their work. So whether that's one single page or something that at least we can have uh, in our collection to be able to teach with or be, to be able to highlight and exhibit, even if it's not the you know complete history of, of their career. Sure. Yeah. Um, is there ever competition between libraries or collections or, or competition between you all and, and more private collectors uh, as you're working to bring things in? I think, I mean, in in theory, sure. But there's no active competition in the sense that people are getting angry at each other. At least I certainly hope not, because <laughs> I I would hope that the that the understanding across the board is that we all are in this for the right reasons, which is to make sure this stuff is preserved. And as long as it is, it doesn't matter where it's preserved. I mean, of course, we, you know, we want to be able to make our stuff accessible to our community here in Columbus at OSU and to, you know, our community elsewhere. Um, So in in that way, it matters to us. But um, as long as this stuff is actually taken care of, that's what matters. And private collectors, 
I, I'm I'm thrilled that there's private collectors, not only because a lot of them work with us, but because they're able to give a lot of these artists some some money. Um, the thing, you know, the only thing I ever worry about or <laughs> warn people about is to make sure that if they are selling something that's very precious to them to a private collector, to really if there's a way to find out how that person's taking care of it, you know, is it being hung in their bathroom? I mean, I've been to a lot of pl- people's houses where there's original <laughs> art hanging in the bathroom and that's like, okay, if that's your thing. But of course we, uh, we don't want the water to be damaging it and humidity, you know what I'm saying? So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's all great. We, I just hope that, uh, uh, especially the private collectors who are collecting mass amounts of stuff, most of them are they're taking pristine care of this kind of work. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You alluded earlier to the process of cataloging uh, these materials once you've brought them into the library. How involved are you in that presumably enormous part of the process? So I'm actually um, – that's probably the process I'm least involved in in my role at W.I. Ireland because I'm technically the outreach curator. So I do everything that's kind of so, – somewhat everything that's forward-facing. But um, but it is an enormous task. And we actually employ a lot of students who are uh, heavily trained and, and equipped to be able to catalog and process original art and comic books and, and things of that nature. And one of the other curators – there's three curators um, – is our collections curator, and she really oversees that entire thing in detail and has a lot of archives background to be able to make sure that collections are getting processed and represented and uh, the most important information about them is being conveyed in the way that we build their finding aid, which is a you know a type of um, uh, cert, uh, database on our website. So um, I'm not as involved in that process. Every once in a while I will be if it's a collection that I tend to know more about or um, have some kind of background or, or involvement in, like the Jay Lynch collection, for example. But otherwise, my main goals um, and my main job at, at work is really working on everything that is front-facing. So curating exhibits, teaching classes, giving tours, uh, doing a lot of the writing that comes out of, of the library, working on our social media, um, and working with, with donors and events. So um, the, yeah, the, the public-facing stuff. What about uh, interacting with researchers? Is that part of your front-facing mission? It's not as much for me. So my colleague Susan Liberator over in our reading room does most of that. Sometimes I'll be involved if there's, again, a question about something that I happen to have a particular knowledge about. Um, I'll be Mm -hmm. tapped and asked for help. But otherwise, that all happens over in the reading room. Mm -hmm. Do you ever conduct research of your own? 
as you're uh, as you're looking at these collections? So I'm on the tenure track, which means that I have to publish or perish. Um, <laughs> I have a couple of years left. So, you know, part of being on the tenure track as a faculty member uh, means you have to publish a certain amount, you have to teach a certain amount, and you have to do a certain amount of service, professional service. Um, so publishing and, and research is definitely a major part of of what occupies my mind and my stress levels. Uh, I am particularly interested in female cartoonists. Um, currently, I have been working on two pieces, one of which is about an artist named Edwina Dumb, whose collection we have at the Cartoon Library. And she's one of these people who somehow is forgotten, even though she it's, it seems crazy that she would be. So I have all the intentions of trying to help bring her name back into more common knowledge with, with some of the work that I do and hopefully with some exhibits. Uh, she was the first female political cartoonist in the United States. And it just so happens that the newspaper that employed her was in Columbus. So it's, it doesn't exist anymore. It hasn't for a long time. But it was a Republican paper called the Columbus Monitor in the 19-teens. And she was doing political cartoons for them as a woman before the women's right to vote was even passed. So she's a extremely important artist who later became um, pretty well known in her time for a very different uh, thing, which was a comic strip about a boy and his dog <laughs> called Cap Stubbs and Tippy. That's a really, really lovely strip. It ran for 40 years. And um, the publishing house IDW is going to be putting out a collection of it in 2018. And they had me write the text for the introduction. So that's been a lot of fun. And the other person I'm writing about right now is a cartoonist also long forgotten named Barbara Sherman, who is one of the first female cartoonists for The New Yorker. And there's very, very little information about her out there. So it's been a really difficult process, but a really enjoyable one. I got to go to the archives for The New Yorker over the summer and dig through them to try to find letters and other documents related to her career. So... There'll be an article about that in the future from me. <laughs> so cool. And you must be working on a book as well if you're on the tenure track, I assume. Actually, for people in the library um, in the library world of tenure track positions, we are not encouraged to work on books because publishing is just one of the many things that we have to do. So sure. we're, um, we're focused more so on peer-reviewed scholarly articles. Well, it sounds like you could have a very exciting book in you at some point down the road if you're so inclined. Yes, I would like to, definitely. One of the things, as you said as well, that you also are really involved in is uh, assembling shows for the museum uh, of, of your work. And, and as you said, you've just been working on one now on comics and, and fashion. Um, what is that process like? Uh, I, don't, I almost don't even know where to begin with those kind of questions. How do you start to put a show of comics art together for a museum? It, it, it's a very daunting process. So to curate an exhibit from collections that contain over 3 million items about one specific topic, you know, depending on the type of show we're doing, can be very hard to do. Um, but we have an exhibits committee that we meet with, and it consists of some faculty members at Ohio State as well, where we, we meet with them um, – two to three times a year, and we discuss potential ideas for exhibits. And we tend to schedule our exhibits out many years in advance because they're they're very research heavy. Um, and from that, you know, we kind of decide which one of us is going to curate which, you know, based on typically personal interest and, and, and time. 
And from there, we just get started. We have to rely really heavily on the way that our work is cataloged because in order to find that stuff, we're searching keywords. So when curating an exhibit about fashion and and comics, not only do I go immediately to the people that I already know had some kind of uh, comic book or comic strip that was connected to fashion in some way. I'll start with those. But then I'm really searching our database for fashion and clothing and women's hats and thing and other kind of keyword things that are going to uh, lead me down a path to finding more. Um, and of course, just doing a lot of actual research. So a lot of reading to find out um, about the specific trends and important important points to hit. Because while all of us at the Cartoon Library are comics experts, we're not necessarily subject experts on things like fashion. Um, The other exhibit that we have about to open up on November 4th alongside the fashion one is an exhibit on immigration. And so that is something that we really have to be um, respectful towards and careful about how we curated a show on. So we, for a show like that, build a advisory committee of people who have had an immigration experience or can bring diverse voices to the conversation so that it's not necessarily just, you know, white curators curating a show about about immigration. So it's a it's a difficult task, but um, I think we've made it work uh, extremely well so far. It just uh, it takes a, a tremendous amount of time. And we're doing at this point, well, we had been doing about almost six shows per year. So we're, we're slowing down a little bit. I think we're now going to only um, have two exhibit changeovers per year instead of three because of just how small our staff is. Yeah. I, I assume, too, with, you know, when you're doing uh, – ex- uh, I assume, too, that when you're doing exhibitions on, you know, kind of topical uh, concerns, but from a historical perspective, things like immigration, that some of the historical materials you're looking at might actually be – you know, problematic by modern standards, but still <laughs> representative or important uh, as we're looking oh, at yes. the history of the medium. Uh, how do you handle those kind of concerns? If, if say, there are, as I imagine there must be in that collection, uh, racist cartoons about immigration from from the past, yeah. or in the, uh, the, the fashion collection, I assume uh, probably some sexist materials uh, about uh, women's issues and such in, in the past. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that we are thinking about and dealing with all the time. And it's all about context, right? So we just have to make sure in all of our exhibit labels and our presentation that we are providing the context for people to understand why we're showing this if we choose to show something that has a racist caricature in it. And the only times we even do that is if there's a real point to be made and if it's an essential piece. So unfortunately, as, as you noted, a lot of early comics in the United States relied extremely heavily on visual stereotypes. But we try to use these as teachable moments for um, getting people to understand um, visual culture a little bit better from the time period. But it is, it's, it's hard, and we've been challenged on it before. Um, so, of course, we're never going to show something that is just so blatantly offensive without a purpose. Not to say that there's mm-hmm. ever a purpose to being offensive necessarily, but we want to, we again need to have that context there and fully available and accessible to people to understand why we're presenting it. And working with those ad- advisory committees really helps us underst- to be able to understand, you know, where, um, what's worth showing, what's not, and how to add um, a little bit more information to, again, put something into into better perspective. When you're writing these labels, 
uh, to go with items in an exhibit um, that it sounds like you have a kind of editorial back and forth with uh, your co-curators. Is that right? Yes. Yep. So um, we usually, depending on who's curating the show, sometimes there's just one curator, sometimes there's a few. Right now, the cur- the show that I'm curating um, called Cartoon Couture is uh, being co-curated by my colleague in the pop culture studies and English department, Jared Gardner. And so he and I kind of broke down label re- writing responsibilities. And after they're done, we bounce them off each other. We also have a really great exhibitions team here. So our um, exhibition uh, designer helps us edit things down, make sure that we are presenting them in a way that's accessible. Because for for a um, for a librarian and an academic to be curating an exhibit and writing labels, you can imagine that they get extremely wordy and very inside baseball. And so it's very good to have a curate a. a, a exhibitions team available to be able to kind of run a fine-tooth comb over these things and say, no one understands what you're talking about. <laughs> or to be able to say, you know, th- these are these are really, um, again, this is kind of insider language that would take a lot more explaining. So mm-hmm. oddly enough, um, it always feels funny to me to say this because it seems mildly insulting, but the the theory with label writing is that you're supposed to write at a, at a eighth grade level. <laughs> it might even mm-hmm. be a fifth grade reading level. I can't remember. <laughs> but it, you're really supposed to write in a way that is extremely accessible because and I've had this experience where I've gone to museums and I'm so confused and bogged down by the information that's being presented to me that I feel stupid and you don't want to go to a museum and feel stupid or uninformed you want to go there and learn something and you want it to be presented to you in a way that is digestible in a way that you understand and so we really want to make sure that we're doing that while also being able to provide the the really important history and context to it. I imagine that one of the other things that you have to spend a lot of time thinking about, apart from uh, choosing items in the first place, providing that his- historical context, editing the label so they're accessible, one of the other things you probably have to think about is the flow of objects within an exhibition itself. And when I'm at a museum uh, walking through an exhibition, it, it sometimes occurs to me that that what I'm walking through is sort of like a, a comic book writ large. You have all these visual objects mm-hmm. and then this language uh, accompanying them. Uh, and and if it works well, it works well in part because the flow from one object to the next, one artifact to the next artifact or one painting to the next or whatever it is, uh, uh, tells a story in its own. Is is that something that resonates with your approach to, to putting exhibitions together? Yeah, absolutely. And because we have... Um smaller galleries to work with it's something that we have to be really careful about how we do um, and how to how to manage the the space that we have um, of course everything is typically broken down into different sections so that it makes sense for it to be shown together but a uh, show that we have up right now that actually comes down tomorrow morning is our, our 40th anniversary show. And for this, we really just wanted to be able to show some of the best and most interesting things that we have. So it ended up being a lot different than a, no- a normal show like the cartoon couture one where there are different sections broken down to themes or decades or a specific artist that uh, is being represented in a, in a grouping. So for this show, which was called um, 
Tales from the Vault, 40 Years, 40 Stories. I curated it with my colleague, Jenny Robb. We decided to tell 40 unique stories from the history of comics and cartoon art that we could tell through items in our collection. And because of that, because they were 40 unique stories, there were things on the wall next to each other that could not be more different. But that in itself provided some really interesting experiences, I think, uh, to be able to see... um, Gosh, yeah, some pages from Green Lantern, Green Arrow next to the original art from Alice in Wonderland or the mm. original art from Super Duper Man up next to um, the original art Super from Duper Man. That's Calvin the, and Hobbes. That's the Mad Magazine parody of uh, Superman, right? Yeah, so we actually have one of the original art pages, just one, from Super Duper Man, which was, uh, <laughs> is considered the very first Mad Magazine parody. And so that's actually the opening story that we t- we told in our in our exhibit. But so even when there's not like a um, an obvious uh, design or plan, these connections can be made that I think can be can be really enjoyable. Well, as the comics theorist Scott McCloud would say, juxtaposition is a is a story or a progression too, even if it doesn't seem to be on first glance. Exactly, exactly. Um, how long does it typically take from beginning to end to bring together one of these exhibitions? I, I imagine it's different from one exhibition to the next, depending on how much of a story you're telling. But is there a is there a, a general kind of time frame? Um. <laughs> well, there's there's an amount of time that I wish I could spend on each one, and then there's <laughs> the amount of time that we actually get to spend on each one because, again, we do so many, and it's one of the many things that we do. Uh, in general, it it tends to be a pretty tight um, timeline. So I can say that for the Cartoon Couture exhibit, I think we started really working on it back in maybe May or June, and it opens up on November 4th. So if that gives you some some perspective. So, I mean, it's about, I would say it's about a half a year per exhibit, but sometimes we can only get really deep into it in the previous, you know, three months or so. Uh, before before it opens up, but it's it's again because because of our staffing limitations and our time limitations, we could spend if we if we had the ability to you know you could spend years curating an exhibit, and many and many other places do. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What are you trying to achieve when you put together uh, a comics show in the museum? Uh, We look at a page of comics differently than we look at, uh, you know, a Renoir or something like this normally. Uh, Arguably, we we look at them differently. Um, We look at them, we use different tools to study them, and, and we study them to different ends, I think. 
how do you, can you resolve those specificities of the medium and our experience of it uh, when you're assembling a, a collection for, for, for public viewing? Well, there's a couple different um, avenues there. So one of the things I think that we can we can think about is sometimes when we're curating a show uh, of comic that contains comics and cartoon art, it's to learn about something else through comics and cartoon art, like this fashion show, for example. I mean, comics in a lot of ways, are such a, a blue-collar, truly American art form. And they're a really great, one of, I think, the the best representations of, of real American life. And so from an anthropological standpoint and sociological standpoint, you can learn so much about culture in general through studying comics. And so it's a specific topic that's not necessarily just the comic. But showing showing cartoons and comic art in a museum setting is really challenging, and it's, it's not for everyone. We've actually had some people come in and uh, feel like, you know, this this shouldn't be in a museum and not necessarily just the kinds of people who th- still think comics are, you know, low culture, but people who think comics, understandably so, are made to be reproduced. And so the reproduction is the thing. That's the thing, not the original art. The original art is just one step along the way. So it is it's so much different than curating stuff for a regular gallery. And, and on top of that, you go to a modern art museum and a lot of typically artwork in a museum is open for interpretation and there's that level for it level of it whereas artwork in our comics museum you know you have to you have to read it you're getting a specific message from the piece that's not i wouldn't i wouldn't ever say that they're not necessarily open for interpretation because of course they are to a degree but it's in a very very different way than a regular you know than an abstract painting is or something like mm-hmm. that so we've talked about two major buckets of your responsibilities, uh, collection development, uh, exhibition planning, uh, and execution. But you also – well, three maybe even so far already since you also do research of your own. Um, but then you teach as well. How much of your time does that consume? That takes up a lot of my time. It's a, it's a little bit different than um, a regular faculty – regular faculty – faculty that are non-library faculty. Uh, which means, you know, teaching faculty, people in the English department, stuff like that. So whereas someone in a different department would teach, you know, a single or a few um, courses that run throughout an entire semester, uh, teaching for library faculty is is a little bit different. So the way it works for me is basically any professor from any department across OSU can contact me and book a either, you know, single date or or multiple dates for their class to come in and learn about their subject matter through the lens of cartoon art and hopefully particularly through the lens of our collection of what we have. So it really runs the gamut. People um, from the English department and art department, of course, utilize us a lot. But we've also done some really interesting classes with people in – Jewish studies. And I worked with a psychology class once. I think we've done a theology class before. So um, we're getting people are faculty members in, in varying departments are starting to really utilize us and really see the benefits of learning about their topics through through visual culture. Um, another really interesting class that I worked with a couple of years ago was a English as a second language course where these um, students from abroad 
came in and worked with us at the cartoon library as part of their humor unit. <laughs> and we looked at, you know, humorous cartoons and comics together because it's much more easily to sometimes visually learn, you know, what a pun is or some other co- uh, aspect of humor by looking at it um, than it is to try to verbally explain something like that to somebody. So um, it's it's been actually really incredible to find all of these unique ways to apply comics and cartoon art to just about anything because I really believe they can be applied to like literally any subject matter in some way or another. So as far as how much time that takes up for me, um, I tend to work with probably three classes per week, sometimes less and sometimes way more. Uh, it really just depends on on the schedule. The challenging part especially is because it's not just one single class throughout the semester, it's us having to become um, very quickly um, subject experts about a very specific topic, a different one multiple times a week in order Mm -hmm. to accommodate that class. But it allows, I love it because it just gives me more of an excuse to learn even more about uh, comics history and the applications of it. But you really have to be a generalist. I mean, you know, when I I used to teach... uh, English and and actually sometimes even comics history, uh, and uh, when I would do that, I would prepare everything in advance at the beginning of the semester. I knew what I was going into. I would do some more additional preparation each week, but I sort of knew the arc of it going in. It sounds like you might get a request and then just suddenly have to know everything about you know comics and psychology in the nineteen thirties or something like this. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, of course, everyone coming into it knows that we are not the experts in their specific field. So we're we're bringing the comics element in and usually relying on the on the professor to hopefully uh, sort of team teach with with the elements that they're aware of. But we do a lot of research to prepare for our classes that are more subject um, specific. And um it's 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 always been, at least for me, a really, really positive experience. And of course, there's lots of classes, too, who want to come in and just generally learn about the history of comics. And there's classes that come in and just want to get a tour and find out how, how an archive works and get a tour of the museum based on the, the subject that they're specifically studying. We're definitely going to be working with a lot of people in the fashion department who are going to bring their classes in to, to tour this, this new show. So um, it really it really varies. But I, I think I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds awesome. Uh, are there any other major elements uh, of your work that that occupy your days, even if there isn't a typical schedule from one to the next? Hmm. The other things are just bits and pieces here and there. So giving tours to general community groups, uh, doing workshops. Um, I used to do more of these than, than I'm able to do now because of some, some uh, time constraints, but I... Uh, have have done many workshops for the Girl Scouts of America who can mm-hmm. now earn a comic artist badge and so they'll that come in so cool. and work with me. Yeah, I know. And I think it's very cool that it only exists for Girl Scouts and not for Boy Scouts. So the the Girl Scouts will come in and work with me to learn a little bit about the history of women working in comics and about the history of self-publishing. And then we'll look at some of our collections of zines and many comics and they can kind of, you know, feel them and read them and, you know, figure out how they were made and work. And then we actually make a mini comic at the end. And it's just a really basic kind of... Um, a single page of paper folded into 
eight pages, tiny little pamphlet thing that they draw. And I, you know, run downstairs and photocopy it for them. And so that by the time they leave, they're officially a self-published cartoonist. So workshops like that are, are something that I, I absolutely love doing. And again, because OSU is, is a public university, we do have that kind of community responsibility as, as well. And in general, we give a lot of tours to any kind of groups, be it retirement homes or uh, student clubs or things like that. So there's that aspect. And then there's um, the uh, social media, stuff like that. I built all of the social media platforms for the Cartoon Library when I first started and started a blog there as well. And those are those have really taken off. So if anyone in Radio Land wants to follow us on Instagram, our handle is at Cartoon Library, and we post a lot of great stuff on there. <laughs> I will be fiddling with my phone as soon as we get off the phone with you. Uh, put that in my own Instagram feed. <laughs> we talked to a lot of people on this show who stumbled into their line of work, who started out doing one thing and eventually found their way into this other thing that they love, that 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 has proven really exciting. You were one of the few people that that I can think of, uh, apart from actually some of the comics artists that we've, we've talked to recently, who growing up said, I, I want to do this one thing, or at some point in their life started to say, I want to do this one thing, I want to become a comics librarian, and who actually like, really did it. <laughs> How satisfying is that? It is pretty great. <laughs> it's pretty great. But I also am aware of the fact that that is not the case for most people, and it course, riddles sure. me with guilt. <laughs> it's yeah. very difficult sometimes for me to talk to my friends about, like, or my boyfriend, like, you know, how was your day? And then, you know, when the question comes back to me, it's like, I just, I shouldn't even answer this. Like, of course it was great. <laughs> I mean, that's not to say that things don't come with their own stressors, of, of course. You know, they, they can be extremely, extremely stressful. But um, no, it, it's amazing. And I feel I feel really lucky that that it worked out, but you know I also uh, really worked my butt off to 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 make this happen, um, and I I think I'm a a good example for people who are going to library school, where I firmly believe if you are if there's some specific thing that you're interested in in general, and you go to library school or archive school, you can work with that specific thing. You know, there's there's a Woody Guthrie archive. There's obviously a comics archive. There's a hip hop archive. There's all kinds of ways that people can, through libraries and archives, really um, apply their, their, their personal interest and personal knowledge to, um, you know, promoting and preserving that thing. So it's, it's great. And, you know, of course, like anybody else, for the majority of my youth, I was not sure what I was going to end up doing or what I was going to end up being. So um, it did... You know, it came to co- together in college and grad school, but I, I realized that that's amazingly uh, young and, and that I'm, I'm really fortunate it actually worked out. And a lot of it is, you know, through the help of, of mentors and um, make, building, collect, building connections, never burning bridges, <laughs> and, and, uh, and just, you know, keeping your eyes on the prize. <laughs> so, and, and, just, and, and loving something, you know? If you... If you <laughs> My uh, a friend and colleague, an old colleague of mine, Alec Longstreth, used to say, uh, comics will love you back. And by that, what he meant is, you know, and I think in more of a general sense, you know, if you love something enough and, and you dedicate so much of yourself to it, like it will love you back. You know, there are ways in which um, purely because of how dedicated I think I was to doing this with my life and to the comics art form that I got this response from the community and from people that were involved with it that um, really supported me and, and allowed me to do this. 
Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your work today. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. This is the uh, last episode uh, of our comic book season. Um, you should go back and check out those episodes at slate.com slash working. We will be back in a few weeks with some great new guests. Uh, we're excited to share those episodes with you. Um, in the meantime, I want to recommend that you check out one of my favorite podcasts, Slate's Audio Book Club, on which one of my favorite people, the invincible Katie Waldman, talks with an array of smart guests about books. In the next episode, they'll be discussing Hillary Rodham Clinton's What Happened. Uh, but if you want to hear more of my voice, for whatever reason, uh, I've been on a few episodes. Uh, you can go check those out as well. We'd also love to hear your thoughts about working. Our email address is working at slate.com. We're always looking for recommendations. If there are guests that you, uh, you want to have on the show, uh, people whose jobs you're curious about, let us know. You can also listen, as I said before, to past episodes at slate.com slash working. Audio engineering for this episode was conducted by the incredible AC Valdez. Uh, and this episode was produced and edited by the astonishing Benjamin Frisch. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.